Father, thank you for this day that you've given to us, this day of rest and worship and fellowship, and we pray that as our fellowship with you is grown stronger and closer, that it would result in our fellowship with one another being stronger and closer as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing in our study of the confession, and we're coming this morning to chapter 25, which is entitled, Of the Church. And right away, the confession is doing something that is new in terms of public church statements. Uh, this, this theology has been developing for a little bit ever since the Reformation began. Uh, Rome does not believe in a distinction between the visible and the invisible church. There is simply one church. And so if you are in the church, you are a Christian. Uh, and, and so Westminster tries to recognize uh, that there are those that are members of the church who have made a public profession of faith, yet who are not truly born again. Uh, and you think of the parable of the wheat and the tares. Uh, that's an example of within the true church, those who are truly born again, there are those who are not born again. And so Westminster is, is formulating this distinction. And so it opens with what the invisible church is. So chapter 25, section 1. The Catholic or universal church, which is invisible, consists of the whole number of the elect that have been, are, or shall be gathered into one, under Christ the head thereof, and is the spouse, the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. So the invisible church or universal, so when we recite the Apostles' Creed and we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, this is what it's speaking of, the universal church. The Catholic church, meaning all the church. The invisible church is all places, all time, or all, let's say, history, and all who are Regenerate, which is a fancy word for born again. You must be born again. Regeneration. Rebirth. So all of the regenerate uh, from all time are gathered into this one body. It's an important thing for us to remember as individuals because it's easy for us to get into our camps. It's easy for us to look down our noses at some other group of believers who don't have 
their I's dotted and their T's crossed in the same way that our I's are dotted and our T's are crossed. Uh, Puritanism and, and Westminster is very much a Puritan document. Puritanism was uh, all about precision in terms of theology. And one of the uh, great Puritans, I believe it was William Ames, uh, somebody said, you know, Mr. Ames, you are overly precise. And his response was, I serve a precise God. Uh, and so he really wanted, and, and the Puritans in general, really wanted to get every I dotted that needed to be dotted and every T crossed that needed to be crossed. They wanted the most thorough understanding of God, of his creation, of their world, uh, their, their place in the creation as they could possibly find. And the danger with that is that we can easily get into kind of, we're the only people that have got it all figured out. We're the only people that are right. And those people over there, uh, you know, they, they don't have a good, solid, robust theology. And this doctrine of the invisible church reminds us it reminds us that these are our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are to love one another. We are to the best of our ability to show unity to the world around us, <clears throat> where we can work together on common biblical uh, you know, outreach endeavors and things like that. We should do so. We are one body. Uh, and in heaven... We're all going to be together. I'm going to be sitting in heaven next to a bunch of Lutherans, next to a bunch of Anglicans, next to a bunch of Episcopalians, next to a lot of Roman Catholics. I'm going to be sitting in heaven next to a bunch of Baptists. I'm going to be sitting in heaven next to a bunch of people that right now I would not feel comfortable having in my pulpit uh, because I think that their theology is not as precise as it should be. I'm going to be sitting in heaven next to a whole lot of Charismatics. Uh, but the fact that I am going to be there one day should influence how I live with them today. Uh, it, it's part of the, the Catholicity uh, of the church. If I am going to look at someone and say, yeah, I don't want anything to do with them, then what I'm saying is they are not born again. And you need to have some pretty strong evidence before you make that kind of a statement. So the first section gives us the invisible church. And then the second section, the visible church, which is also Catholic or universal under the gospel, not confined to one nation as before under the law, consists of all those throughout the world that profess the true religion and of their children and is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, the house and family of God, out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation. Now, we'll camp for just a minute on that very final clause, because that <clears throat> is something that uh, is controversial. Uh, but first, let's just... say what the confession is saying, and that is that there is a visible church. 
church, which is also universal. And that consists of all who profess true religion together with their children. Now, the distinction between the visible and invisible church, there's clearly, there should be an identical overlap. If you're a member of the universal church, you're a member, uh, I'm sorry, if you're a member of the universal invisible church, you're a member of the universal visible church. If you're a member of the visible church, you should be a member of the universal church. Now, Westminster, the confession, is not Presbyterian. This is something that a lot of people will push for. You know, I've, I've had this argument with an awful lot of people, some of them pastors. Uh, I may have had this argument with seminary professors even. I can't remember specifically. But, but they see Westminster as a uniquely Presbyterian document because it's the Presbyterian church that uses it as our confession. But it was not Presbyterian from the beginning. There's nothing in the confession about Presbyterian church government. The men who gathered for the assembly included Anglicans, included Congregationalists, and obviously did include Presbyterians. Uh, but the document that they produced, the document that they all signed off on, is a document that Anglicans can hold to. Westminster was initially supposed to be a revision of the 39 articles uh, of the Church of England. So, so you know, if you're going to say anything denominational about it, you'd have to say it's primarily an Anglican uh, document. Congregationalists were. And so that's a good question. The question is, were there any Baptists uh, involved in it? And in the assembly itself, they were primarily Congregationalists. The difference being that, so, so like John Owen, is, is somebody that is often assumed to be a Baptist. He was not Baptist. Uh, John Owen was not a Baptist. He was a Congregationalist. And so Baptist and Congregationalist today kind of mean the same thing. Back then they didn't. Uh, congregationalism strictly was the form of government, that this congregation is the church, and I don't have... There, there's no oversight over me from outside the congregation. My entire oversight, the people who hold me accountable, are the people here, not anybody else. Yes, they, they definitely are independent. Um, now, the Baptists recognized fairly early on that they can't subscribe to the Westminster Confession for a bunch of different reasons, this being one of them, uh, that the church, the visible church, is also made up of the children. 
And so they did their own confession in 1689, and it's called the London Confession. And so the London Confession is almost word for word the Westminster Confession. They just took the Westminster Confession and they changed some of the passages, uh, for instance, on baptism, uh, where the Westminster Confession says there are three legitimate modes of baptism. One is immersion, one is sprinkling, and the third is pouring. So a Presbyterian is fine immersing someone, and we've actually had two baptisms by immersion uh, here in our own congregation. Uh, immersion, sprinkling, pouring, any of those three are proper. The Baptist confession says only immersion uh, is proper, and so they don't allow sprinkling and pouring. So, so those are some of the some of the changes that they made in 1689. But so, so while the the uh, while the confession is not Presbyterian, it's not Anglican, it's not uh, Congregationalist. It is covenantal. Lost my marker. Um, and so this is, so if you're a theology nerd, uh, Reformed Baptists, uh, people who, who are Baptists but identify as Reformed, uh, lots of times Presbyterians won't let them get away with calling themselves Reformed. Uh, they're Calvinistic Baptists. Now, personally, I don't really care. Uh, but what people are putting their finger on by saying, no, there's no such thing as a Reformed Baptist. There may be a Calvinistic Baptist, and that's what you mean when you say Reformed. But Reformed is a lot more than simply the five points of Calvinism. Uh, reformed is... Covenantal, uh, reformed, and and so the Congregationalists. So John Owen, uh, again, he's he's wrongly. Baptists love to take credit for John Owen as being one of their guys. He's not one of their guys. Uh, he's a Congregationalist, and John Owen and and Jonathan Edwards is another example. Jonathan Edwards <clears throat> was a Congregationalist. A lot of the people that came and established Puritan New England uh, were Congregationalists. Uh, And so when they come and establish Congregationalism as as what they believe is the most biblical form of church government, they still baptize infants. And and so a lot of people are not aware of that. Uh, They think Congregationalist equals believer's baptism. It does not. Uh, congregationalism strictly is a form of government, and it has to do with where is the accountability. Uh, is the accountability outside the congregation, or is the accountability limited to the congregation? And, and so this all may sound, you know, heady and ethereal, but it does have significant impact uh, if 
you, you know, let's say I just become convinced that television and specifically Netflix, uh, Netflix is the vehicle by which all manner of lascivious behavior and entertainment is being pumped into Christian homes, and therefore we as a session have voted and we have said in order to be a member in good standing at Sterling Presbyterian Church, you may not have a Netflix subscription. At that point, <laughs> at that point, we've crossed a line. Uh, because there's nothing in our confession that says those things. There's nothing that gives me the right to say those things. In fact, the confession says God alone is Lord of the conscience uh, and is left it all uh, free from all dictates of men which are in any way contrary to or beside his word in matters of faith and practice. So while it may be wise for you not to have Netflix in your home, there we don't have the right to step in and make our wisdom decision your faith decision. So let's say the session does exactly that. We step up and we say, this is the ruling of our session, is nobody in this congregation is allowed to have Netflix in your home. If you are a congregationalist, what is what are your options? You can leave the church. You can you can try to vote me out. You can get together enough people that are concerned about that statement and say, this is crossing a line, uh, this is turning into a cult, they don't have the right to do that, we need to get rid of the pastor, and that happens. Uh, that, that does happen. Uh, but realistically, your options are, you can stay in the church and get rid of your Netflix subscription, or you can leave the church. That's, that's realistically your options. Now, in Presbyterianism, we have these courts. Where we have all agreed, thank you, to be accountable. We, we, we've agreed to hold one another accountable. It's a voluntary, uh, it, it's a voluntary agreement. I chose to become a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And one of my vows when they made me a minister, when, when they made me a, actually a, an officer, so either ruling elder or teaching elder, they both take the exact same vows. But, but one of those is, do you promise submission to your brothers in the Lord? And so I stood up and I, in front of God and witnesses, said, I will promise to submit to my brothers in the Lord. And so you, standing here as a member of Sterling Presbyterian Church, have been told you're not allowed to have Netflix in your home. And you say, yeah, this isn't right. You have the right to appeal this to the presbytery. And when the presbytery gathers, and these are officers from all of the congregations that make up our region, so we are in the presbytery of the Mid-Atlantic, 
and it includes churches as far north as Frederick, Maryland, as far west as Stanton, Virginia, as far south as Fredericksburg, and as far east as uh, California, Maryland. Uh, so that's our presbytery. That's our group of churches. And we all get together three times a year, and we do the business of the church, which includes exactly this. It includes people in a congregation who believe that the pastor, that the session has in some way mistreated them. And so they bring the appeal to the presbytery level. And if the presbytery, you know, we all know we live in a fallen world. Presbytery might be a bunch of good old boys. We all have each other's back. Nobody's really going to hold the other guy accountable because I don't want to offend this guy and yada yada. And so we don't do what we should do. You have the right again to appeal to the General Assembly. And at the General Assembly, this is all the Orthodox Presbyterian churches from all over the United States. So we've got people from Hawaii. We've got people from Puerto Rico. Uh, we've got people from all over the place that come for this General Assembly. And at the General Assembly, we it, it takes place over a week uh, time. It starts on a Wednesday and it closes the next Wednesday. And, and so at this General Assembly, these types of cases are heard, where someone in the local congregation feels like their pastor, their session mistreated them. They've appealed to the presbytery. The presbytery said, nope, we're upholding the decision of the pastor. We're upholding the decision of the local session. And so they can appeal again to the General Assembly. And then it gets taken up at the General Assembly. The last one that I was in attendance at, I'll get your question in a minute. The last one I was in attendance at, a guy was appealing his excommunication. Uh, and so he actually came uh, to where we were holding the, the assembly in Sioux Center, Iowa, at Dort College, and was appealing the fact that his local session had excommunicated him. Uh, he had appealed that to the presbytery. The presbytery had upheld the local session's action, and now he was appealing it to the General Assembly. So we have these types of cases all the time. This is, this is a common feature of Presbyterianism, is that we've got these levels of accountability. Uh, and so you don't have to just pack up and leave the church if, if you feel like the church has mistreated you. Right? So, no, he, good question. What, what's happening to the individual while he's going through the appeal process? Um, the original ruling stands until it's overturned. So, so if at some point, you know, if Presbytery overturned it, then he can come to the church and he can take the Lord's Supper. The session can appeal it to GA, but, but, that ruling at the presbytery level will stand until GA takes it up. Uh, but, yeah, the, so, so the ruling stands unless it's overturned. Uh, explain the, the motivation from the congregational church. Do they do the hearings? Or how are they baptized? 
So that's a great question. What, what's the mode of baptism in a congregationalist church? <laughs> so, I tell you what, let me get to that in a second. It's 9.15 or 10.15. I want to make just one more point here in all of this, uh, and then I'll pick it up again, Lord willing, next week. Um, one of the reasons that this is so important, this distinction between the visible and invisible church, one of the reasons that this is so important is because it gives us the basis for pressing our children to own their faith, to be born again. Uh, we do not assume that our children are regenerate coming out of the womb. We do not assume that our children are regenerate because they've been baptized. Uh, we encourage our children to make their own profession of faith because we recognize that this visible church, which includes children, is not identical with the invisible church. And so we want those who are members of the visible church to also be members of the invisible church, and so we press upon our children the need to make their faith public and, and to, to be born again, to, to understand uh, the gospel. Now, these things, especially with covenant children, you know, scads of people will say, I have no idea when I came to the Lord. I just grew up knowing. I mean, I think, I think the vast majority of my own children, that's their testimony. Uh, I, they, they don't know a time when they did not call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, and so praise God for that. That's what I think any parent hopes for all of their children, is that they never know a day in which they do not call upon the Lord's name. Uh, but there's a recognition here that you can be a baptized member of the visible church and go to hell. Uh, and, and so by maintaining this distinction, it gives us the framework to be able to say, yes, you are a member of the church. Yes, you are baptized, but you need to make your profession of faith. You need to publicly profess Christ uh, before men. And, and so that's one of, the, uh, uh, one of the tools that this invisible, visible distinction gives us. It's also somewhat recently, within the past 20 years, there was a movement called Federal Vision, uh, if any of you are familiar with that. And one of the first things that federal, the Federal Vision Movement did was it denied the distinction between the invisible and visible church. They said, if you're a member of the visible church, you're a member of the invisible church. And that's a Roman Catholic uh, doctrine. That's a Roman Catholic teaching, which is why we got all hot and bothered about Federal Vision in our midst. Uh, so... I'll pause there and I'll answer uh, your question, Ms. Vividelli, very briefly. Uh, what mode do congregationalists use? Now, I don't know if there are any true congregationalist churches today. Uh, there may well be, and I just don't know it. But 
a historic congregational church, and this includes uh, Cotton Mather, it includes Jonathan Edwards, it includes uh, um, John Owen, uh, but but a historic congregationalist church does baptize children. And so they would use any of those three modes. Sprinkle, pour, immerse. They would say there's scriptural warrant for any of those three. Uh, you sprinkle with hyssop to be clean. You pour the water to signify the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in, in the new covenant of Jeremiah 31. Uh, you immerse to, to line up with, with the image that Paul gives us in Romans 6, uh, or 8, 6 or 8, one of those two, uh, of, of, in baptism you're buried with Christ and raised, uh, to new life. So, so generally, they would agree any of these three, they're, they're legitimate grounds for. A Baptist church happens to be congregationalist. And they... are noted for believing in believer's baptism uh, that, that it's only after a profession of faith that the person is baptized. So they're not baptized, so they're not covenantal, uh, and they're not baptized on the basis of the covenant. They're baptized on the basis of their own individual profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe... that it is universally through immersion. Uh, there may be exceptions to that. I'm not aware of them. Uh, so somebody can can fill me in if they know of a Baptist church that sprinkles or pours. I, I've never met one yet. Uh, the baptistry is always the big tank and, and all that behind the pulpit. Um, so over time... Historically, these two have, this has kind of just disappeared, frankly. Uh, we just don't really have congregationalists around anymore. Uh, there is the, uh, there's, there's a group called, I think it's the Four Square uh, Congregationalist Church, and I believe that they may do some infant baptism, but it's very, not many people know about it, uh, and so so I think that the Foursquare Congregationalist uh, does infant baptism, but but I'm not 100% positive on that. But I do know that basically today, if you're saying Congregationalist, you're also saying Baptist. And if you're saying Baptist, you're also saying Congregationalist. They, they kind of mean the same thing today. And it's all believers' baptism by immersion. So, I've gotten the uh, watch hand signal, which means I'm over time. Uh, let me close there, and uh, Lord willing, we can pick up next week with uh, the rest of this chapter.
Heavenly Father, as we move through this this doctrine of the church, uh, Lord, help us never to take our eyes off of the fact that she is your bride. She's called to be holy. And as members of her, we are to love one another and to love you with all our heart, soul, and strength. Help us to be uh, what you have declared us to be, and that is holy. In Christ's name, amen.